Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It was wild to wake up yesterday to a bright blue sky, wasn't it? The rains were so intense, the wettest three weeks since Abraham Lincoln was president, and they reset my expectations for what kind of weather it's even possible to experience here in Northern California. And yet, over the last few years, we've experienced such brutal dryness that many of our most important reservoirs still aren't up to normal. So. We take a step back today to talk about our state's climate system and the more extreme weather it can produce. And we're happy to announce that this is the first show in a new collaboration with the KQED science team we're calling Climate Fix, Rethinking Solutions for California. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We frequently bring you segments devoted to discussing global warming. And today, we're expanding on that work by launching a collaboration with our science team at KQED called Climate Fix, Rethinking Solutions for California. This new regular series on Forum will explore how climate change is affecting the Golden State and the ways Californians are trying to reverse global warming. Our state has always experienced extreme weather, but climate change has increased the likelihood and intensity of those events. And we'll explore that science this morning. Joining us here in the studio, we have Danielle Venton, science reporter with KQED News. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Also joining us, Laura Feinstein, Sustainability and Resilience Policy Director at SPUR, which, as you probably know, is a San Francisco policy and research organization. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And we're joined by Patrick Gonzalez, who is a climate change scientist and forest ecologist at the University of California, Berkeley, and the executive director of the Institute for Parks, People, and Biodiversity. All things I like. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you. Good morning. So, Daniel, we have been hearing, you know, during this year, but also in, you know, over the last decade, this term extreme weather to kind of describe the storms and heat waves that we've experienced Is there an exact kind of definition of extreme weather, or how would you think about that? Yeah, extreme weather is weather that's unusually severe. So think heat waves, freezes, heavy downpours, tornadoes, cyclones, floods. That this extreme weather can cause devastation to communities, to agriculture, or to ecosystems, and. Severe weather is intense, but extreme weather is not normal for that location. That's the key point. Huh. And when we're talking about, like, the storms that just happened, how would you describe those? Were those severe or were those extreme? 
I mean, I think that the the picture is going to become more clear. Um, those floods were in line with some of the extreme, some of the intense rainstorms that California has seen, you know, in its history. Um, but coming on the heels of such a dry period, you know, we, we're hearing a lot about that kind of precipitation whiplash. Um, that was uh, there was definitely record set for the amount of precipitation that came down so quickly. Yeah. I think anybody who was in San Francisco on New Year's Eve when it rained five inches was sort of like, no, that was extreme. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and we saw that that was not, you know, the, the weather models uh, got that wrong. You know, they thought less precipitation was going to fall. And that is likely due to climate change not being able to keep up with uh, with how our models work. Yeah. Laura, so how can people make sense of these, the, the broader climate patterns kind of in amongst this kind of variation that we're seeing of that, that would be normal for, for California? Right. So I think one of the ways that I like to think about how the weather is changing is, you know, California has always been prone to these big swings from dry years to wet years. But, you know, we have a way of categorizing uh, extreme events or severe events, we talk about them in terms of how often they reoccur. And so, you know, uh, scientists have looked at the historical records and they've um, defined what's a hundred year rain event. Now, you know, that's the that's the most extreme rain event you'd expect to see happening about once every hundred years. They know what's a what's a one in every 200 year event and so on. And what is changing is that we're seeing those supposedly one in a hundred year events happening more often. And the climate models are forecasting, in fact, that we're likely to see a one in 200 year flood just in the next few decades. And what's important to realize is that it's typical to build infrastructure to withstand a one in a hundred year flood, but our infrastructure is not designed for a one in 200 year flood. So it's going to press our infrastructure to its limits. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about something that's like a one in 200 year flood, like w- what does that mean? I mean, relative to like what we got just like over the last three weeks, you know? The one in 200 year flood would exceed what we saw in the last couple of by weeks. By like a lot. Of by lot. a lot. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think the the you know the the record keeping is still kind of like in progress right now but i've heard that like the early estimates are that san francisco had by far um the most rain that it's seen in the past 120 years on that new year in that new year's eve storm for example um but a 200 year event that would exceed even what we've seen wow you know patrick uh gonzalez what are the other types of climate impacts that people experience r- related to extreme weather? We've been talking about extreme weather, but it's overlaid on this century-long heating of, uh, that's caused by uh, carbon pollution from cars, mm-hmm. power plants, and deforestation. And it's increased temperature in the San Francisco Bay Area up to 1.7 degrees Celsius. That's 3 degrees Fahrenheit. And this has caused a drought across the southwestern U.S. that's been the most severe since the 1500s. And this has caused a doubling of wildfire above natural levels, a doubling of tree death. And um, another impact of climate change has been sea level rise at the Golden Gate uh, uh, human-caused climate change has risen sea level about halfway to your knee. 
You know, Danielle, I feel like something that kind of lingers in the background of some of these discussions of, you know, what was natural versus what sort of climate forced is that we're going to end up crossing barriers or crossing thresholds where we can't undo what we've done, like that there would be some things that were irreversible. Like, what might those be or where might those thresholds or limits be? I mean, one thing that comes to mind, um, and, and I, I know Patrick can speak to this too, but with these ex- extreme fires that we're seeing, really intense fires, um, f- fires are a natural part of our state, always been here, always will be here, but we're seeing them within, an, they're occurring with an intensity where um, forests are having trouble re- recovering, you know, and we're losing forests and it's getting converted into shrubland because... The because the forest is just not able to recover as it naturally would, mm. and we're seeing you know a, t- a type conversion um, in land, and that's that's not that's not desirable to happen across the whole state because we need those forests for our water resources, um, for habitat. You know, it's that's an example of kind of a tip that that is hard to come back from. Do you want to expand on that, Patrick? Just the the way that these extreme weather patterns and the fires and dryness of the soils and the vegetation, um, the way that that does change things kind of permanently. Wildfire, the excessive wildfire above natural levels is, uh, uh, published research has shown that it is decreasing the natural regeneration of tree species like ponderosa pine and Douglas fir, which are normally resistant to drought. And um, it also puts at risk uh, the regeneration of chaparral vegetation in Southern California, uh, which normally completely burns uh, in one year, but needs one or two years of rainfall to regenerate naturally. These are potentially irreversible effects. Yeah. But if I could just inject... um a positive note, there was some prominent climate research that came out, I think it was maybe a year ago or two years ago, that showed that if we can draw down our carbon stocks um, and kind of rebalance our, our atmosphere a bit, this this in this baked in warming that we has that we have assumed, you know, is sort of inevitable, um, might not be as severe as as we thought, and that temperatures could rebalance if we can draw out that carbon pollution from the atmosphere. And I feel like that's just a very positive, uh, you know, such a positive idea that we're not inevitably doomed. Like we caused yep. this problem, and <laughs> absolutely, we, can, we have. Yeah. There's a lot that we can do to make it better. Yeah. Absolutely, climate change is in within our power to halt. Um, we we have increased the global temperature 1.1 degrees Celsius. That's about uh, two degrees Fahrenheit. Um, but um, if we implemented. All of the uh, commitments that countries have made, 194 countries have made under the Paris Agreement, then we could restrict the global temperature to uh, 1.9 degrees, and that's keeping it below a th- critical threshold um, of, uh, uh, to prevent the most drastic impacts of climate mm-hmm. change. Yeah. It's within our power. We're talking about how climate change is fueling extreme weather in California, and we're joined by Patrick Gonzalez, who's a climate change scientist and forest ecologist at the University of California, Berkeley, Laura Feinstein, Sustainability and Resilience Policy Director at SPUR, and Danielle Venton, our own 
Danielle Venton of KQED News, a science reporter. We want to know, how has this extreme weather impacted your life? Uh, the number is 866-733-6786. We'd also take your questions for the experts about extreme weather in California. That number, again, is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, Laura Feinstein, you mentioned earlier just that our human systems are not prepared for some of these changes in extreme weather patterns. I've been wondering, like, someone who's just building a building, how would they even know that that baseline had shifted from one in, you know, a thousand years to one in 200 years or one in 100 years? Well, the way you could um, do some pretty simple research on that is to use CalAdapt, which is a tool that the state put together to let people um, look at the forecasts in um, in extreme weather events and, and temperature and so on both across the state, but also lets you zoom in on your location and see what, what the trends are in uh, in your little town or, or county. Hmm. And is that something that has been integrated into urban planning processes? Not nearly as much as it should have been. Um, so, you know, the definitely the standards have been slow to keep up. Um, you know, for example, one thing I would point to is that... Uh, uh, permits are still handed out for development along the Bay Shore based on um, what is uh, what is above the high high tide level now. And uh-huh. that is changing quickly. <laughs> right. I mean, it's already changed. Um, so we're, we're still kind of like assuming that, you know, that, uh, that again, that variation from low tide to high tide. Yeah, we know there's variation, but we, we're still working within this old framework that we know the range of variation. And it is rapidly changing. changing. Oh, man. We're talking about how climate change is fueling extreme weather here in California. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how climate change is fueling extreme weather here in California. Perhaps you've noticed there's been some. We're joined by Danielle Venton, science reporter with KQED News, Laura Feinstein, sustainability and resilience policy director at SPUR, and Patrick Gonzalez, climate change scientist and forest ecologist with the University of California, Berkeley, as well as executive director of the Institute for Parks, People, and Biodiversity. 
We would love to hear from you. How has extreme weather impacted your life? Maybe you're a longtime resident and you've seen some new things in your backyard or in your basement. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. We'd also love your questions about extreme weather in California, how to prepare, what the science says. That number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. One listener tweets, uh, Daniel, we're going to start with you on this one. Should we be preparing for flood events like the 1861-62 huge Central Valley floods? My grandparents and father survived the 1955 Yuba City flood, which happened after a similar atmospheric river series of storms. So first question out of that, what happened during the 1861-1862 huge Central Valley floods? So we had... um you know, the, if you think about the rains that we've had <clears throat> since Christmas around here, if we had basically double that, twice that, that's on the that's on the yes. order of how much rain was seen in the 1860s, oh and it caused um, this absolutely massive flood that was devastating. It killed 4,000 people in California. It was 1% of the state's population at the time, inundated downtown Sacramento, made sort of the Central Valley this big, this big lake. Um, and that was before we were seeing impacts from climate change. So that is... Or converted the, long... the entire Central Valley into or, an agricultural machine. Right. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so that is the kind of thing that we know we are likely to see in the future. And there's been some, there's been some excellent climate science looking at the, the possibility of an arc storm, um, which could be even, even more severe from that. So should we be preparing? I would say yes, but I, I mean, I have a question. I would love to hear from from Laura and our, and uh, and Patrick. You know, I, it's unclear to me if we could prepare our way out of severe damage from a storm of that magnitude. Uh, first of all, atmospheric rivers are a natural feature of the climate, but. Uh, Climate change is intensifying them. So published research shows that the atmospheric river in 2017 that caused the uh, overtopping of the Oroville Dam. Climate change intensified rainfall by 11 to 15 percent. And this 1862-level flood, climate cha- uh, published research shows that climate change has doubled the probability of uh, a flood of that magnitude now. Laura, what do you think to the question of can we prepare and maybe even like should we prepare? I think we can prepare. I think we can prepare, I should say. Um, But I do think we have to change how we prepare. I think, you know, there's sort of been this toolkit, you know, that was developed in the 20th century. Um, you know, you, you put the rivers in between levees and uh, and you control them, right? And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that toolkit is going to start to fail us. Um, you know, the amount of money you're talking about to try to build levees that can withstand an arc storm, you know, we, we just don't have it. You know, we just don't have those resources, not when you're also contending with wildfire, slowing down climate change. So we're going to have to shift more towards living with water in California and big rainstorms in California. And what I mean by that is that uh, rivers are going to need to take back some of their floodplains. We need to give them room to expand uh, because if we don't, they're just going to overtop the levees or the levees will fail. Um, And that, you know, that's what you can't prepare for, right? You know, 
you can't you can't predict where a levee will fail or when it will fail. But you can you can give rivers room to flood their banks um, and to decrease the pressure on levees elsewhere. So uh, I think well, there'll have to be some picking and choosing. Give the rivers some more room room to spread out in some places, and that's probably going to mean pulling back um, some some towns and some places where people live. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think um, there's a lot to adapt and to protect the places that that we live in. But there's going to be some locations that people have settled in that aren't probably going to be livable. So would we still see like mass evacuation? Would we see mass evacuations in the event of like an 1862 type storm? I would imagine that you would, but I could also see that that uh, that the the severity of that kind of thing could really be mitigated if if you had areas that uh, where the rivers are can spread. And you can take some of that extra water and let it spread out to what it historically used to used to cover in a big rainstorm. So what about those legacy water control systems, though? You know, like all that the whole reservoir system that sits above Sacramento. What are we supposed to do with that? Because we we need that. Right. I mean, they are the state's water for the population. So what do we do with that kind of aging infrastructure, especially, you know, when we think about what Patrick mentioned, which was the Orville dam like almost went down right i mean there were mass evacuations during that time and because it didn't happen i think we've sort of kind of put it out of sight out of mind i mean we still need our reservoir system and so on um but it is getting it is aging and it needs maintenance um and it's also um, not as useful. It's not as adapted to to the California climate we have now. Um, so you, the the reservoir system was built really to capture this long, slow, steady snowmelt that we would get from the Sierra Mountains all all spring long, and that would carry um, the cities and the farms through the dry summer and winter. And with the climate getting warmer, we're we're still often getting a nice big snowpack in the winter. Like last year, there was a nice big snowpack. But then the weather turned hot and warm suddenly um, in the winter, and most of the snowpack evaporated mm. before it ever made it to the reservoirs. Yeah. You know, what's wild is we're now going to talk about wildfires. We're going to talk about trout. We're going to talk about the other <laughs> side of things. And mm-hmm. it's it's wild because it, that whiplash is a real possibility, right, Patrick, that we could see exactly this scenario play out again. There's a lot of you know uh, uncertainty about what might happen to the, the snowpack. Last year, why did we have this relatively mild wire, wildfire season, even though we were in this you know kind of extreme drought condition? If you remember last year, we um, got... Uh, pretty good storms in December, and then uh, they disappeared for the rest of the winter, but we did get enough uh, to to keep the landscape moist. Uh, this year, uh, the California Department of Water Resources reports that uh, snowpack is um, double the average for the date, and actually, we've reached the April, f- the average April first level already, which is like the normal peak, right? Yes, yes. So uh, hopefully, hopefully that'll be good. But um, about wildfire, really, the fundamental issue is that natural fire is essential to the health of forests and woodlands in California. Um, yet, scientific research shows that human-caused climate change has doubled the area burned by wildfire over natural levels across the western U.S., including California, since 1984, and at the same time, outdated policies of suppressing all fires, even natural ones, have generated 
unnatural accumulations of woody debris and small trees. So old policies piled up the fuel and climate change threw in a match. Yeah. So here, here's a question that I get from people. This rain, everyone's like, oh, the rain is good. The rain is good. But then people are always like, yeah, but doesn't it just like cause more vegetation to grow, which then makes the wildfires worse? Is that true or is that not true? We're balancing that production of more vegetation, which provides fuel with um, moistening all of the fuel that is there. And uh, because of the, the relatively slow growth uh, right now, these uh, two past winters have been very good for moistening the, uh, the the woody debris on the forest floor and the trees. So um, we're not yet seeing that uh, that effect of of more vegetation causing uh, more fire. Let's uh, bring in our first caller. Let's bring in uh, Paul in San Francisco. Welcome, Paul. Yes, thank you. I'm a third generation Californian. And the population in California has uh, roughly doubled in 50 years. I keep on hearing that we need more housing in California, which is obvious. But I never hear about the repercussions of that on the climate change with more people. So uh, is California going to be an environmentally better state with 50 million people than it is with 40 million? I'm confused. Uh, is it Why isn't population growth discussed? Hmm. Paul, thanks so much. Um, I think, you know, we, we do have, have do address this question sometimes. Um, Laura uh, Feinstein, I mean, I think this is one of Spurs' uh, kind of crucial roles is to kind of think through how could we house people in environmentally advantageous ways. That's right. Um, we do spend a lot of time thinking about this. And the key word here is efficiency. Um, so to look back, um, you know, in the early 1980s, um, uh, California households were a lot less efficient in how they used water, for example. And then um, over the next 40 years, we've seen the the population of the Bay Area go up by a third, and yet total water use has gone down by a third. And that is mainly because people have gotten so much more efficient in how they use water in their homes and their businesses. Um, And there is still technology um, out there on the shelf that um, over the next decades. Uh, We're looking to see businesses and homes install. And we're forecasting uh, that average water use will continue to decline in that steady rate. So um, that's really how we can accommodate uh, new people who come, but also our kids, you know, um, who we hope can actually live here and, and afford to live here. That's how we accommodate them is we continue to have advances in technology that just make it easier to live on less energy and less water and, and still have a good quality of life. Well, and I think it's also worth keeping in perspective that um, that people, you know, household use is, is a fraction of overall use in this state, right? Like agriculture uses the vast, vast, vast majority and then businesses use a lot. Um, and then and then household use is, is a narrow slice and households have gotten so much better at how they use water in the past couple decades. We've also seen um, increased efficiency of energy use. Now, while the caller is correct that moderating and and stabilizing a population would be beneficial to the environment and reduce climate change, California actually 
uh, cut carbon pollution 11% since 2000, even as the population of the state increased 17% and economic production increased 63%. So we did this by becoming more energy efficient. Uh, California is powering its future with solar, wind, energy efficiency, conservation, public transit, and other sustainable solutions. And um, uh, this offers hope for the future if we can continue those sustainable practices. Yeah, I mean, I I think the only pessimistic note I would sound uh, around some of these things are just that the average size of a home has gone up so much, average size of a car has gone up so much, which feel like entirely optional things. Like you get the same service out of the home, but it actually requires so many more materials. And I think that's one of those things that's been uh, kind of consistently frustrating as as a kind of market failure that that's continued to, you know, we, yep. sure, you might have an electric vehicle, but it's an electric vehicle that's an SUV, you know, which requires all the materials that, that go into there. A- absolutely, Alexis. You know, in the United States, transportation generates more carbon pollution than any other sector. If U.S. cars and light trucks were a separate country, they would be the eighth biggest carbon polluter in the world more than the emissions from all sources in Canada and France combined. That's because cars are inherently inefficient. And uh, individually, I take action by climate change, uh, on climate change by living a car-free life, walking, taking public transit, and, and cycling. Yeah. Well, that's a great point that Patrick raises, which is that people who live in walking distance from their homes and schools, they can live on so much less energy. And also, if you live in a smaller home, like you're mentioning, Alexis, you use a lot less resources. Um, And the fact that people have been building these sort of McMansions out in the suburbs and the exurbs, I think it's a a large part uh, a failure of um, policy that um, that cities really haven't been doing a good job of allowing new growth in the right places. Yeah, we have an interesting uh, question here, uh, Deb in Wood in Woodland. Yeah, what's your question? Um, it's a question about the loss of all of our hundred hundred and fifty year old large trees in the Sacramento Valley from the floods, and how much the carbon that they've captured is now going to just be re-released in when they have to cut these trees up. It's mm. an interesting question. Uh, Patrick? Trees provide this natural service of naturally taking carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it. And, um, of course, uh, when the trees die and the floods, uh, that uh, releases it long term. Actually, wildfire uh, does more of this. Um, mm-hmm. Research by colleagues and me showed that wildfires have caused ecosystems to lose more car ecosystems in California to lose more carbon than they absorb and that two thirds of the emissions come from the six percent of the land that burns. Yeah. We have some uh, interesting comments coming in from uh, from listeners. I mean I I would say um, Danielle that many of them are not as optimistic as you. Uh, the uh, Denise writes, reversing climate change may very well be in our power. As your guest just said, I wish I shared her optimism. There's a big difference between what's physically possible versus what humans collectively have the will to accomplish. Another listener writes in, thanks for this conversation. Even if we act in accordance with all proposed changes in climate proposals, the temp would continue to rise as the system runs on feedback. How, how have you... 
I guess, maintained or built this kind of optimism that we might be able to make these kind of large scale changes? Well, I appreciate those comments very much. Uh, and point taken. I mean, I, I try to be realistic and understand that, you know, our future it, it's gonna, may, may hold some pain from climate change. Absolutely. Um, I also chose to have a kid last year (laughs) because I still think it's really great to be here. And I thought, you know, he would he would enjoy his life and still has a chance for a great life. Um, What I think is so meaningful about that research that, you know, the, the intense built in warming that we thought was inevitable is not actually inevitable. It just gives us hope. And we're you know, if we don't have hope and the sense that, you know, a better future is possible now we're definitely not going to have a better future. Uh, you know, we can we can shape it, and knowing that it could be really good, or it doesn't have to be as bad as the worst case scenarios. I'm with Danielle really here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with Danielle here. Our our challenge is substantial, uh, absolutely. Yet recent results show that progress uh, on carbon solutions is taking us in the right direction. From 2000 to 2001, the world quadrupled renewable energy capacity globally, adding solar, wind, and other renewable energy equivalent to 6,500 coal plants. And in the U.S., renewable energy sources exceeded coal for the first time since 1880. The U.S. has cut carbon emissions 13%. California has cut uh, uh, carbon pollution 11%. These data provide me with science-based optimism. Yeah. Of course, you know, cutting the first 20% might be harder than cutting the last 20%. <laughs> Just to be the pessimist for some reason on no, the show this morning. Uh, no, uh, a- absolutely. The, the early uh, progress is the easiest. Yeah. Uh, but the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and that's the science panel that produces the authoritative assessments of climate change. Um, and I've served as a, a lead author on, on four reports of the IPCC. And, and for that work, it's actually received the, uh, a share of the Nobel Peace Prize. The IPCC has assessed the carbon solutions and concluded that we can meet the Paris Agreement goal with concerted action from governments, corporations, and individuals using existing technology and practices. It's up to us. We're talking about how climate change is fueling extreme weather in California and also some of the solutions as well. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking climate change, extreme weather. We're talking climate mitigation and adaptation here in California with Danielle Venton, science reporter with KQED News, Laura Feinstein, sustainability and resilience policy director at SPUR, which is a San Francisco policy and research outfit. We're also joined by Patrick Gonzalez, who is a climate change scientist and forest ecologist at the University of California, Berkeley, and executive director of the Institute for Parks, People, and Biodiversity. We would love to hear from you. We're going to go back to the phones uh, in this uh, third segment here. We want to know what your questions are about extreme weather in California. Numbers 866-733-6786. Or if you can't get through there, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email, of course, is forum at kqed.org. Let's go to Amy in San Francisco. Welcome, Amy. Hi there. Um, I'm a local photojournalist, and <clears throat> I'm often working with uh, different corporate media outlets as I'm a freelancer. And I'm so extremely frustrated at um, media and that they're not speaking truth to power and holding the true culprits accountable. Um, <clears throat> I think it should be everyday headline news, what ExxonMobil um, has done since the 70s, you know, that report that just came out that they knew and um, we all know that, but that should be in, in the headlines every single day. Um, media also is not talking about what we have to do now, which is stop the bleeding. You know, we're talking about the effects of these huge weather events. We're talking about, um, you know, what we can do in the future to mitigate floods and such. But we have to stop the bleeding first. They should be talking about uh, civil disobedience and covering it, like what's going on in Germany right now with activists trying to stop the expansion of one of the dirtiest coal mines um, or dirtiest forms of coal. And they're completely bulldozing a town to do so. So I just wanted to speak to that, that I think in being a journalist and being in the media, this is our responsibility now. And there, there should be a bias. And we should say you know, what's really happening here. We have to hold those that are responsible for it, which are the large corporations, the oil companies, and hold them accountable. And it should be in the headlines every day. Thank you for your uh, for your comments, Amy. Thanks for your passion. Appreciate that a lot. I, you know, Danielle, I mean, you cover climate for KQD. You cover science. How, how do you think about balancing the various needs of your beat, the responsibilities and ethics you feel yourself um, on how you cover global warming. Mm. I really appreciate Amy's conversation, and I agree that, you know, climate change is the story of our time, and we should be talking about it all the time. Um, And I think that the media had some big misses in the early days of the early days of climate change, you know, in the in the eighties and the nineties, and even even sometimes still today, the 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 perceived you know the desire for balance of this is what ninety nine percent of scientists are saying, and this is what you know this fringe you know or this is what the the ExxonMobil scientists are saying. I mean that really did the public a disservice. In my own reporting. Um, I try to accurately represent when there is genuine, fair disagreement on on a on a scientific question. Mm-hmm. But if consensus has settled on a certain side, then I then I try to be clear that you know that the consensus opinion among at, among the smartest minds say that you know indeed 
um, human-caused climate change is making our fires worse. Um, I also, you know, fires and fire resilience is kind of my core beat. And I try to talk about that year round. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes people only want to talk about fires when they're actually burning. But I make an effort to get people interested Mm -hmm. in talking about preventing them, adapting to them, living with them the whole year round because that because taking action year round is the only way that we're really gonna Mm -hmm. live with them more successfully. Yeah. Let's um, go into one of those areas of of what feels like reasonable disagreement to me. Greg in Woodside, welcome. Good morning. I just want to say, you know, I really want to push back on this idea that we need to burn the forest to save the forest. Um, You know, nature's had all this figured out long before us, and we really just need to um, stop thinking that we can uh, manage nature, and we actually just need to concentrate on repairing the damage that we've caused. Um, You know, this idea that, oh, you know, we shouldn't have um, suppressed fires. Well, I think we would be in a, a worse situation today had we not suppressed the fires. Um, you know, and a lot of people will point to, oh, Native Americans, you know, burned the forest. Well, Native Americans, during that time, we didn't have coal power, power, power plants. The population was, you know, one-tenth of what it is today. And the whole list of reasons why that argument doesn't stand up is really just about the incredible difference in our, our realities. Um, you know, trees emit moisture back into the atmosphere. That creates the climates that we have, you know, because we've done st- over um, something like um, 45% of the planet has been deforested. Um, this is not going to change until we actually can bring our intelligence together and create a, a more thorough picture of what, you know, nature is doing and how to actually work with it instead of against it. Um, yeah, you know, great. all this debris on the forest floor it actually decomposes and feeds the forest. It needs that, and that process happens with moisture. So, you know, I think there's a lot of pieces and parts that we actually need to sit down and bring back together and and create a a really cohesive idea and plan for for the future. Thanks so much for that, Greg. You know, Patrick Gonzalez, you're a forest ecologist. Um, Talk to me a little bit about where you see legitimate disagreement about how to manage our forests both on a sort of carbon, you know, balance level, but also on just forest health, you know, uh, and and making sure that we have functioning ecosystems, uh, you know, in, in California. Well, published scientific research shows that in California, natural fire is essential to the health of forests and woodlands. It promotes the seeding and growth of many tree species. You know, the, the, the caller uh, it, it may be correct for other ecosystems like Amazon tropical rainforest where fire is not natural. But here in uh, California and much of the western U.S., it is natural. And so suppression has uh, caused these this unnatural accumulation of woody debris and small trees. And so the... the um, uh, most effective solutions and, and field experience and published research show this is preventive burning, prescribed burning that, um, that simulates what the natural fire would have done. And also letting remote natural fires, uh, fires that uh, are way in the backcountry that lightning has naturally ignited, letting those burn and restoring a natural fire regime, a natural balance. And by doing this, actually, the trees can, over the long term, store more carbon because uh, what 
preventive burning, prescribed burning, and letting natural fires burn does. It um, removes the small trees. It leaves the large trees, and they have more room, and uh, they grow better, and they grow larger. And over the long term, they store more carbon than they release. And this is a natural climate change solution. I want to talk about uh, one of the other weather extremes here, which we, we've, we've touched on, but we haven't really gone into, which is, Danielle, the drought, right? Um, earlier in the show, you know, Patrick mentioned that uh, the Southwest as a whole has been uh, having the worst drought since, you know, 1500. Um, now that we have received all of this rain, how should we be focusing our attention in thinking about the drought now as as compared to, you know, before, you know, three weeks of the heaviest rain since, the, you know, the 19th century. <laughs> I've learned a lot <laughs> since covering these storms. And what I have found is that drought is complicated. And what you're talking about when you're talking about a drought depends on what you're looking at and who, you know, kind of who you're asking. So you can talk about drought in terms of precipitation, how much rain and snow is coming down. You can talk about drought in terms of hydrological, like how much is in lakes and streams, uh, agricultural, how much farmers are getting in irrigation, or in socioeconomic. You know, are people's wells drying up? Can they get clean water? So So to generalize a little bit, our water supplies in California are doing better than they were a month ago. The the rain was really helpful. It does not mean that we are out of all measures of looking at a drought. And you, you, you know, if you ask, how can that possibly be? How can we have flooding and a drought at the same time? There's an analogy that I've been using, whereas if you are, which is if you were really thirsty, super dehydrated, and I can't, okay, Alexis, I got you, and I dumped a bucket of water over your head, <laughs> <laughs> that would not necessarily quench your thirst. If I could give it to you in little bits where you could kind of absorb it, you know, then maybe we could maybe someone go in my you. mouth too. Presumably, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even really if you thirsty. could, you know, get a little, get a little. <laughs> <laughs> so we can have, you know, we can have a lot of water hit the state and still not be not be out of a drought. And what's important about that is that to the extent that we have a conservation mindset, you know, in our, we need to we need to keep hold of that. We also know that in climate change, you know, our, our, our atmosphere is hotter. It's drier. The, the water that is here evaporates more quickly. So we could still be in really dry conditions in the summertime, doesn't mean that, you know, we're just not out of the woods yet. Yeah. yeah. That's a great analogy, actually, because it's, it's about the difference between a short-term event and long-term trends. Um, so, you know, California experiences droughts that last a couple of years all the time. And, you know, the human infrastructure and the natural ecosystems are all adapted to that pattern. But uh, this underlying trend towards getting hotter and drier, that is going to continue. And so the question isn't really, are we out of the drought? It's really, how does this impact our long-term climate outlook? And it's really like, this is just part of the problem. Yeah. This is, this, this is what, we, what climate scientists have been saying to expect, which is a hotter, drier um, uh, climate that gets hit with these short bursts of big rain events. Yeah. And it's that fundamental heating long term that has made these droughts uh, more severe. In our Mediterranean type climate in California, 
rainfall normally bounces up and down year to year, mm-hmm. but this is superimposed on this long-term heating. So uh, sometimes we have a period where we have this natural low in the rainfall, and now it coincides with this century-high uh, heat. Yeah. You know, I, one thing I really do appreciate about these storms, I mean, e- tragic as they were for you know, the people who lost their lives or, or had you know, their businesses or, or homes destroyed, really did feel like it was, it's a, was a big warning sign, you know, like the, like the fires of the, the last decade, like things are changing. You should know the different definitions of drought and how flooding and drought may work to get like that for, for Californians, for those of us who are just kind of living our lives, trying to, trying to do everything else while also thinking about climate change, the story of our time, which I think we all agree, there is just so much to know about how this extreme weather is, is going to play out in in your basement in you know the wild life urban interface in you know in our cities it's it's a it's um this was helpful in in some regards um one listener ann writes in to say i feel helpless listening to these types of discussions what are the three most impactful things that individuals can do in their daily lives to help our our climate. My suggestions, try eating more vegan meals, eat plants, not animals, become mostly vegan, buy less stuff, cut back on jet travel, reuse takeout containers. What are your recommendations? You know, I, Daniel, I'm going to throw this to you, um, but I want to, with the proviso that part of the problem is it's not really just an individual problem, right? I mean, one individual changing in these ways is not going to, you know, set the balance or even many, many people because there are systems in place beyond what individuals can affect. But all that said, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would tell, I would tell Anne like the drought is not your fault. Climate change is not your individual fault. You do not have to take on the guilt of that. The, to the extent that you can live your life, you know, conserving energy, conserving water, that is excellent. You can also, my colleague Laura Clivens has done some really wonderful work on how to take climate action when you want to. One of her key suggestions is to identify the thing that you care about the factor that you care about, and to marry it with your kind of abilities and strengths and skill set and to take action in that in that particular realm. Mm-hmm. You know, can you, um, you know, do you care about preserving habitat and mm-hmm. are you a great community organizer? <laughs> you know, can you find a way to make those, those mm. work together? Uh, you know, you can also take action on a smaller scale. So, so to the extent that we can sort of chip away at, at improving systems that are accelerating climate change, that's really effective. Also, voting for people who mm-hmm. voting for people who care about climate change mm-hmm. is, is super effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I would just say, just just you don't have to live your life with guilt. Let's get to one last call. One last call, Meredith in Walnut Creek. Welcome, Meredith. Good morning. My question this morning is, what can we do to support our environmental um, urban planners that are working in the Bay Area? Um, Well, the city of Redwood City back in the mid-90s approved a lot of housing for which they did not have a water allotment or didn't go through the urban planning and the urban planner. Um, We have, and so now we have a lot of units that are not designed to have water. We've got the city of Watsonville where their urban plan specified in their environmental impact report not to build on the waterways that drain to the ocean so they don't flood. However, in the years that follow, well, um, Watsonville has 
in fact, built along these waterways and added housing density there. So we're having a lot of things that are being recommended by urban planners that are putting those people who live in those areas at risk down the road. What can we do to help mitigate or improve Mm -hmm. or have some oversight for these cities to actually take environmental responsibility for what they're doing here in the Bay Area? Meredith, what a great question. And I feel like we have such a great, uh, Laura, find such a great person to answer this. So um, I'm so glad you asked this question. Um, this is something that uh, we wrestle with a lot at Spur. And, I, you know, I think uh, the, the problems that you're correctly identifying, I think a lot of them come up because there's this push and pull uh, between what's best uh, in kind of the next five or 10 years for a city. Um, and, uh, and those cities are often kind of in competition with each other. You know, they want to bring new businesses and new homes and grow their tax base. And if they take the most environmentally responsible stance, well, maybe all that growth is going to go to their neighbors. So I think the right approach is, um, is really to change the standards and the expectations that are set at the state level around planning, around mm. planning for growth, around planning for drought, planning for flooding, um, so that you know, the cities are starting to, to compete and work on, on some more equal footing so it doesn't put one city at a disadvantage to, to take a more environmental perspective. Yeah. And would, it, would writing your elected officials be the best way to support that? Oh, yeah. And I mean, I feel like I've heard this theme of you know, frustration that there's not enough happening. You can't do as en- enough as an individual and you can't. Um, the media doesn't cover it with enough urgency. And, and to me, I think take that passion that I'm hearing from the caller and let's focus it on policy change. And that is afoot. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of great organizations out there where you can get involved in collective action. Um, And, you know, just um, I would love for some people on this uh, listening in to call to join on March 1. Spur is hosting a program about um, taking action on climate change here in the Bay Area. So join us and learn about sort of how you can find your your kindred spirits. We've been talking about how climate change is fueling extreme weather in California. It's been our first installment of Climate Fix, Rethinking Solutions for California, collaboration between KQD Forum and our science team. We've been joined by Danielle Venton from that science team, Laura Feinstein, Sustainability and Resilience Policy Director at SPUR, and Patrick Gonzalez, climate change scientist and a forest ecologist at the University of California, Berkeley. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you so much. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.